Welcome to Flourish. I'm Diane Panadan, and you're in the right place if you're ready to create an inspired life. And go on to chapter 28 in our journey through Psych 100 at Queen's University. This is an actual really good chapter all about attention. Yeah, so let's get started. We use the term attention all the time, but what processes or abilities does that concept really refer to? This module will focus on how attention allows us to select certain parts of our environment and ignore other parts, and what happens to the ignored information. A key concept is the idea that we are limited in how much we can do at any one time. So we will also consider what happens when someone tries to do several things at once, such as driving while using electronic devices. Attention. Yes, we probably could have used this chapter a long time ago, but let's get going on the learning objectives that we have to keep in the back of our mind as we go through the chapter. Understand why selective attention is important and how it can be studied. Learn about different models of when and how selection can occur. Understand how divided attention or multitasking is studied and implications of multitasking in situations such as distracted driving. So let's begin by reading about what it is. Before we begin exploring attention in its various forms, take a moment to consider how you think about the concept, how you would define attention, or how would you use the term? We certainly use the word very frequently in our everyday language. Attention, only used as directed. <laughs> did you see what I did? I wasn't paying attention to the words, was I? Use only as directed. Warns the label on the medicine bottle, meaning to be alert to possible danger. Pay attention, pleads with the weary seventh grade teacher, not warning about danger. <laughs> with the possible exceptions, you know, depending on the teacher, but urging the students to focus on the task at hand. We may refer to a child who is easily distracted as having an attention disorder, although we are also told that Americans have an attention span of about eight seconds, down from 12 seconds in 2000, suggesting that we all have trouble sustaining concentration for any amount of time. How that number was determined is not clear, nor is it clear how attention span in the goldfish, nine seconds, was measured. <laughs> They're talking about a, a website here. And uh, the fact that our average span reportedly is less than a goldfish is intriguing to say the least. William James wrote extensively about attention in the late 1800s. Often quoted passage beautifully captures how intuitively obvious the concept of attention is, while it remains very difficult to define in measurable concrete terms. Everyone knows what attention is. It is a taking possession by the mind in clear and vivid form of one out of what seems several simultaneously possible objects or trains of thought. Focalization, concentration of consciousness, are of its essence. It implies withdrawal from some things in order to deal effectively with others. Notice that this description touches on the conscious nature of attention, as well as the notion of what is in consciousness is often controlled voluntarily, 
but can also be determined by events that capture our attention. Implied in this description is the idea that we seem to have a limited capacity for information processing and that we can only attend to or be consciously aware of small amounts of information at any given time. Many aspects of attention have been studied in the field of psychology. In some respects, we define different types of attention by the nature of the task used to study it. For example, a crucial issue in World War II was how long an individual could remain highly alert and accurate while watching a radar screen for enemy planes. And this problem led psychologists to study how attention works under such conditions. When watching for a rare event, it is easy to allow concentration to lag. This continues to be a challenge today for TSA agents charged with looking at images of the contents <laughs> you carry on items in search of knives, shampoo bottles, and, you know, that, that evil water, right? <laughs> but it gives you a good visual that, you know, when you're going through the airport, that's exactly what they're doing. They have to pay attention. So attention in the context of this type of search task refers to the level of sustained attention or vigilance one can maintain. In contrast, divided attention tasks allow us to determine how well individuals can attend to many sources of information at once. Spatial attention refers specifically to how we focus on one part of our environment and how we move attention to other locations in the environment. These are examples of different aspects of attention, but an implied element of most of these ideas is the concept of selective attention. Some information is attended to while other information is intentionally blocked out. This module will focus on important issues in selective and divided attention addressing these questions. Can we pay attention to several sources of information at once, or do we have a limited capacity for information? How do we select what to pay attention to? What happens to information that we try to ignore? Can we learn to divide attention between multiple tasks? We'll begin with the selective attention, the cocktail party. <laughs> this is a good example because a cocktail party is, is all about beyond just hearing your name from the clamor of the party. Other words or concepts, particularly unusual or significant ones to you, can also snag your attention. So selective attention is the ability to select certain stimuli in the environment to process while ignoring distracting information. One way to get an intuitive sense of how attention works is to consider situations in which attention is used. A party provides an excellent example for our purposes. Many people may be milling around, there's dazzling variety of colors and sounds and smells. The buzz of many conversations is striking. There are so many conversations going on, how is it possible to select just one to follow? You don't have to be looking at the person talking. You may be listening with great interest to some gossip while pretending not to hear. However, once you are engaged in conversation with someone, you quickly become aware that you cannot also listen to the other conversations at the same time. You also are probably not aware of how tight your shoes feel or the smell of a nearby flower arrangement. On the other hand, if someone behind you mentions your name, you typically notice it immediately and may start attending to that. 
much more interesting conversation. This situation highlights an interesting set of observations. We have an amazing ability to select and track one voice, visual object, etc., even when a million things are competing for our attention. But at the same time, we seem to be limited in how much we can attend to at one time, which in turn suggests that attention is crucial in selecting what is important. How does it all work? Dichotic listening studies. This cocktail party scenario is a quintessential example of selective attention, and it is essentially what some early researchers tried to replicate under controlled laboratory conditions as a starting point for understanding the role of attention in perception. In particular, they used dichotic listening and shadowing tasks to evaluate the selection process. Dichotic listening simply refers to the situation when two messages are presented simultaneously to an individual with one message in each ear. In order to control which message the person attends to, the individual is asked to repeat back or shadow one of the messages as he hears it. For example, let's say that a story about a camping trip is presented to John's left ear and a story about Abe Lincoln is presented to his right ear. The typical dichotic listening task would have John repeat the story presented to one ear as he hears it. Can he do that without being distracted by the information in the other ear? People can become pretty good at the shadowing task and they can easily report the content of the message that they attend to. But what happens to the ignored message? Typically, people can tell you if the ignored message was a man's or a woman's voice or other physical characteristics of the speech, but they cannot tell you what the message was about. In fact, many studies have shown that people in a shadowing task were not aware of a change in the language of the message, and they didn't even notice when the same word was repeated in the unattended ear more than 35 times. <laughs> Only the basic physical characteristics, such as the pitch of the unattended message, could be reported. On the basis of these types of experiments, it seems that we can answer the first question about how much information we can attend to very easily. Not very much. We clearly have a limited capacity for processing information for meaning, making the selection process all the more important. The question becomes, how does this selection process work? Models of selective attention. Broadbent's filter model. Many researchers have investigated how selection occurs and what happens to ignored information. Donald Broadbent was one of the first to try to characterize the selection process. His filter model was based on the dichotic listening task described above, as well as other types of experiments. He found that people select information on the basis of physical features, the sensory channel or ear that a message was coming in, the pitch of the voice, the color or font of a visual message. Hmm. People seemed vaguely aware of the physical features of the unattended information but had no knowledge of the meaning. As a result, Broadbent argued that selection occurs very early with no additional processing for the unselected information. If you're watching this on YouTube, there's a flowchart of the model which looks 
really quite good. So this figure shows information going in both the left and right ears. Some basic sensory information such as pitch is processed, but the filter only allows the information from one ear to be processed further. Only information from the left ear in this particular example is transferred to short-term memory and conscious awareness, and then further processed for meaning. That means that the ignored information never makes it beyond a basic physical analysis. Next is Treisman's attenuation model. Broadbent's model that we just talked about makes sense, but if you think about it, you already know that it cannot account for all aspects of the cocktail party effect. What doesn't fit? The fact is that you tend to hear your own name when it is spoken by someone, even if you are deeply engaged in a conversation. We mentioned earlier that people in a shadowing experiment were unaware of a word in the unattended ear that was repeated many times, and yet many people noticed their own name in the unattended ear, even if it occurred only once. Anne Treisman carried out a number of dichotic listening experiments in which she presented two different stories to the two ears. As usual, she asked people to shadow the message in one ear. As the stories progressed, however, she switched the stories to the opposite ears. Treisman found that individuals spontaneously followed the story or the content of the message when it shifted from the left ear to the right ear. Then they realized they were shadowing the wrong ear and switched back. Results like this and the fact that you tend to hear meaningful information even when you aren't paying attention to it suggests that we do monitor the unattended information to some degree on the basis of its meaning. Therefore, the filter theory can't be right to suggest that unattended information is completely blocked at the sensory analysis level. Instead, Treisman suggested that selection starts at the physical or perceptual level, but that the unattended information is not blocked completely. It is just weakened or attenuated. As a result, highly meaningful or pertinent information in the unattended ear will get through the filter for further processing at the level of meaning. We have another figure below here that shows information going in both ears, and in this case, there's no filter that completely blocks non-selected information. Instead, selection of the left ear information strengthens that material, while the non-selected information in the right ear is weakened. However, if the preliminary analysis shows that the non-selected information is especially pertinent or meaningful, such as your own name, then the attenuation control will instead strengthen the more meaningful information. That's truly fascinating, isn't it? Next is late selection models. Other selective attention models have been proposed as well. A late selection or response selection model proposed by Deutsch and Deutsch suggests that all information in the unattended ear is processed on the basis of meaning, not just the selected or highly pertinent information. However, only the information that is relevant for the task response gets into the conscious awareness. This model is consistent with the ideas of subliminal perception. In other words, that you don't have to be aware of or attending a message for it to be fully processed for meeting. 
So this model, you might have noticed, looks a lot like that of the early selection model, only the location of the selective filter has changed, with the assumption that analysis of meaning occurs before selection occurs, but only the selected information becomes conscious. Next is multi-mode model. Why did researchers keep coming up with different models? Well, I was just asking myself the same thing because no model really seemed to account for all the data, some of which indicates that non-selected information is blocked completely, whereas other studies suggest that it can be processed for meaning. The multi-mode model addresses this apparent inconsistency suggesting that the stage at which selection occurs can change depending on the task. Johnson and Heinz demonstrated that under some conditions, we can select what to attend to at a very early stage, and we do not process the content of the unattended message very much at all. Analyzing physical information, such as attending to information based on whether it is a male or female voice, is relatively easy. It occurs automatically, rapidly, and doesn't take much effort. Under the right conditions, we can select what to attend to on the basis of the meaning of the messages. However, the late selection option, processing the content of all messages before selection, is more difficult and requires more effort. The benefit, though, is that we have the flexibility to change how we deploy our attention depending upon what we are trying to accomplish which is one of the greatest strengths of our cognitive system. This, this discussion of selective attention has focused on experiments using auditory material, but the same principles hold for other perceptual systems as well. Neiser investigated some of the same questions with visual materials by superimposing two semi-transparent video clips and asking viewers to attend to just one series of actions. As with the auditory materials, viewers often were unaware of what went on in the other clearly visible video. 20 years later, <laughs> Simons and Chabri explored and expanded these findings under similar techniques and triggered a flood of new work in the area referred to as inattentional blindness. We touch on those ideas below, and you can also refer to another module failures of awareness, the case of inintentional blindness, for a more complete discussion. That's, that's the next chapter. Focus topic one, subliminal perception. The new idea of subliminal perception that stimuli presented below the threshold for awareness can influence thoughts, feelings, or actions is fascinating and kind of a creepy one. Can messages you are unaware of embedded in movies or ads or the music playing in the grocery store really influence what you buy? Many such claims of the power of subliminal perception have been made. One of the most famous came from a market researcher who claimed that the message, eat popcorn, briefly flashed throughout a movie, increased popcorn sales by more than 50%, although he later admitted that the study was made up. <laughs> Psychologists have worked hard to investigate whether this is a valid phenomenon. Studying subliminal perception is more difficult than it might seem because of the difficulty of establishing what the threshold of consciousness is or even determining what type of threshold is important. For example, Cheeseman and Merkel made an important distinction between objective and subjective thresholds. The bottom line 
is that there is some evidence that the individuals can be influenced by stimuli they are not aware of. But how complex the stimuli can be or the extent to which unconscious material can affect behavior is not settled. Hmm. Divided attention and multitasking. I like this one. In spite of the evidence of our limited capacity, we all like to think that we can do several things at once. Some people claim to be able to multitask without any problem, reading a textbook while watching television and talking with friends, talking on the phone while playing computer games, texting while driving. The fact is that we sometimes can seem to juggle several things at once, but the question remains whether dividing attention in this way impairs performance. Is it possible to overcome the limited capacity that we experience when engaging in cognitive tasks? We know that with extensive practice, we can acquire skills that do not appear to require conscious attention. As we walk down the street, we don't need to think consciously about what muscles to contract in order to take the next step. Indeed, paying attention to our automated skills can lead to a breakdown in performance or choking. But what about higher level, more mentally demanding tasks? Is it possible to learn to perform, perform two complex tasks at the same time? Jeepers, I hope so. <laughs> divided attention tasks. In a classic study that examined this type of divided attention task, two participants were trained to take dictation for spoken words while reading unrelated material for comprehension. In divided attention tasks such as these, each task is evaluated separately in order to determine baseline performance when the individual can allocate as many cognitive resources as necessary to one task at a time. Then performance is evaluated when the two tasks are performed simultaneously. A decrease in performance for either task would suggest that even if attention can be divided or switched between the tasks, the cognitive demands are too great to avoid disruption of performance. We should note here that divided attention tasks are designed in principle to see if two tasks can be carried out simultaneously. A related research area looks at task switching and how well we can switch back and forth among different tasks. It turns out that switching itself is cognitively demanding and can impair performance. Unless a task is fully automated, some researchers suggest that multitasking doesn't really exist. You're just rapidly switching your attention back and forth between tasks. The focus of the Spelk et al. study was whether individuals could learn to perform two relatively complex tasks concurrently without impairing performance. The participants received plenty of practice. The study lasted 17 weeks and they had one hour session each day, five days a week. These participants were able to learn to take dictation for lists of words and read for comprehension without affecting performance in either task. And the author suggested that perhaps there are not fixed limits in our attentional capacity. However, changing the task somewhat, such as reading aloud rather than silently, impaired performance initially, so this multitasking ability may be specific to these well-learned tasks. Indeed, not everyone could learn to perform two complex tasks without performance costs, although the fact that some can is impressive. Distracted driving. 
more relevant to our current lifestyle are questions about multitasking while texting or having cell phone conversations. Research designed to investigate, under controlled conditions, multitasking while driving has revealed some surprising results. Certainly, there are many possible types of distractions that could impair driving performance, such as applying makeup using the rear view mirror, attempting to stop the kids in the back seat from fighting, fiddling with the CD player, trying to negotiate a handheld cell phone, a cigarette and a soda all at once, eating a bowl of cereal while driving. But we tend to have a strong sense that we can multitask while driving and cars are being built with more and more technological capabilities that encourage multitasking. How good are we at dividing attention in these cases? Most people acknowledge the distraction caused by texting while driving and the reason seems obvious. Your eyes are off the road and your hands and at least one hand, often both, are engaged while texting. However, the problem is not simply one of occupied hands or eyes, but rather that the cognitive demands on our limited capacity systems can seriously impair driving performance. The effect of a cell phone conversation on performance, such as not noticing someone's brake lights or responding more slowly to them, is just as significant when the individual is having a conversation with a hands-free device as with a handheld phone. The same impairments do not occur when listening to the radio or a book on tape. Moreover, studies using eye-tracking devices have shown that drivers are less likely to later recognize objects that they did look at when using a cell phone while driving. These findings demonstrate that cognitive distractions such as cell phone conversations can produce inattentional blindness or a lack of awareness of what is right before your eyes. Sadly, although we all like to think that we can multitask while driving, in fact, the percentage of people who can truly perform cognitive tasks without impairing their driving performance is estimated to be about 2%. Wow, that's not a lot. In summary, it may be useful to think of attention as a mental resource, one that is needed to focus on and fully process important information especially when there's a lot of distracting noise threatening to obscure the message. Our selective attention system allows us to find or track an object or conversation in the midst of distractions. Whether the selection process occurs early or late in the analysis of those events has been the focus of considerable research. And in fact, how selection occurs may very well depend on the specific conditions. With respect to divided attention, in general, we can only perform one cognitively demanding task at a time, and we may not even be aware of unintended events, even though they might seem too obvious to miss. This type of inattention blindness can occur even in well-learned tasks, such as driving while talking on a cell phone. Understanding how attention works is clearly important, even for our everyday lives. Well, were you able to hold your attention on that? <laughs> that was really good. That was really good. I, I enjoyed that subject matter. And I'm going to get going and do the vocab for this chapter. So make sure you hit that subscribe button. You don't want to miss it. I'm Diane Planadan, wishing you to live an inspired life.